No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. For our Defiant show, we were not only excited to be back as an official 2021 Brooklyn Book Festival bookend event, but to share these incredible stories in front of our first live audience in two years at a brilliant new venue, Culture Lab LIC. Thank you, thank you to the Brooklyn Book Festival, Lambda Literary, and City Artist Corps for helping to make No, You Tell It part of New York City's creative resurgence. Our first defiant story begins on the precipice of real teen shit, when, in a small New York town, a teen explores his identity while working at the local Serenity Suites Cafe, developing friendships with the town rebels and navigating questionable adults in and around the shop as he carves his own path, before hearing... You're Gonna Be Sweet Boy, performed by his story partner, Desi Waters. I asked writer and comedian Bobby Hankinson a bit about his No You Tell It experience. You got uh, a No You Tell It literary question. What surprised you most about the No You Tell It process? I think what surprised me most was just how willing all of the writers, including myself, uh, were to really grow each of their pieces and come in with something that where they weren't locked in and weren't totally done or willing or even if they felt that way were willing to keep going and keep pushing and keep going to new places. I think I was surprised with how far that went. I knew that feedback was important to the process but I was really impressed with how open everyone was. Great. Yeah, I was especially impressed, uh, like impressed with that too considering that we were doing things over Zoom and it's also great to hear too because we have been working together for about the past month to work on these pieces on the page before we get to hear them tonight on stage. So with that, now now you're allowed to, to sit down. <laughs> uh, first up, here is You're Gonna Be Sweet Boy, written by Bobby Hankinson and performed by Desi Waters. You're gonna be sweet boy. When I was 14, I lived in one of those upstate New York suburbs that had more diners than libraries without, say, a cultural center, museum, or even decent fake IDs easily accessible. We would spend our days just wandering aimlessly. The only sidewalks we had circled two lakes in the center of town, perpetually covered in goose shit. It didn't matter. There was nowhere to go anyway. In any other town, this would be the story of a young outcast finding refuge among aspiring artists in the theater. This is not that story. Our theater kids were just the children of the department's biggest financial backers, bullies, but with vibrato. <laughs> Plus, I didn't have a strong enough sense of self to even know what I was longing for, let alone sing about it. I was merely a reflection of the town's chief export. Abject nothingness. One day, as we walked past the usual diners, nail salons, off-track bedding windows, and more diners, something caught our eye. The sign outside read, Serenity Suites Cafe. 
We were standing outside, cold and wet, since we were steadfastly smack in the middle of our I don't need my snow pants, Mom, phase. So we decided to peek in. A middle-aged woman named Kathy greeted us with a smile. Can I get you guys some hot chocolate? I have a bunch of board games over here. You can hang out here as long as you'd like. No one in our town ever encouraged the teen to continue existing anywhere outside a classroom or maybe a laser tag arena. Had she been a witch trying to eat us in some 90s Hansel and Gretel reboot, we would have happily skipped directly into the oven. <laughs> Serenity Suites became our default hangout and Kathy, our benevolent hostess. It didn't take long before she recruited us for employment. Most of the time, Serenity Suites was your average comfortable coffee and pastry shop. They'd occasionally host acoustic music and poetry readings on Friday nights. The bulk of the business, however, was decorative chocolates. They'd make tons of lollipops and candies using a variety of molds, and on weekends, we'd host kids' birthday parties where sticky children would run roughshod through the cafe, flinging melted chocolate everywhere, while their moms kept busy pretending, oh, they didn't know they were supposed to tip. Oh, and it was also an ice cream parlor. Like the cafe, I also had not yet settled on any coherent identity. There is something beautiful about the early, pristine personhood already somewhat shaped by limited experiences but not yet able to exercise any autonomy to respond. Identities shift throughout our lives, but you can never return to that earliest, cleanest slate. Before you ever tested, who am I? Who am I not? I couldn't appreciate it that at the time. I desperately wished for a sorting hat that would tell me if I was Molly Ringwald or Ali Sheedy, Slater or Screech instead of uh, Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw. <laughs> I longed for the high school cafeteria tribalism most people fear. Not because I thought I would land in the upper social strata, but because all the rituals and trappings that go into maintaining identity, the performance of it all, felt like finally something to do. And I was done being a child. Kathy never saw me as a child. One night, as I cracked open some sweetened condensed milk, she leaned in and giggled that she always found sweetened condensed milk very vaginal. <laughs> Which I immediately clocked as a very weird thing to say to a 14-year-old who was clearly probably gay. I didn't consider anything vaginal. I didn't consider vaginas at all. Any red flags, however, were quickly forgotten in the rush of speaking with an adult as a sort of peer, especially in such a candid, naughty way. Her husband had none of this cool mom energy. He was a large Greek man named Donnie, and he took no shit. After school, the college dropout that manned the store during the day would be outside smoking clove cigarettes when I arrived. Donnie would blow in and run down the task for the day. Make 100 chocolate red roses, 50 yellow tulips, 12 fire trucks, and 25 hearts. Oh, order pastry for tomorrow, clean the counters, vacuum, man the coffee bar, work the kitchen, and serve the ice cream. Sometimes 
He'd leave their toddler daughter in a pack-and-play for me to half-supervise while elbow-deep in melted chocolate. Then he'd walk straight in the back-and-play bathroom to piss all over the toilet seat <laughs> with absolute abandonment. I had to clean that up, too. One day, he burst through the door in his usual whirlwind of tasks and splattered urine. He exited it as hastily as he entered, but within moments called the store from his car phone. Bobby! This is Donnie, he began, already sounding uncomfortable. I, I forgot to mention, we need 100 chocolate penises for a bachelorette party tomorrow. <laughs> I worked at the cafe for almost a year at this point, and the most controversial product I previously encountered was an off-brand Thomas the Tank Engine mold. <laughs> he directed me to the secret stash hidden in the back. Among them were the cartoony chocolate penis pops he asked for, along with a few other surprises. There was a coin that had a detailed 3D vulva on it. There was an amazing mold of a, of a peeled banana, but inside the peel was a penis <laughs> for some sort of horny, curious George-themed bachelorette party. But buried deep in the mold pile was a, was a mold for a larger than average sized, fully 3D cock and balls, articulated down to the circumcision scar. Without hesitation, I went to melting chocolate and filling that mold. One set, the massive chocolate dong was a stiff, incredibly lifelike replica as a budding homosexual in such a zero-horse town, I had yet to handle any other penis beside my own. So this discovery was embarrassingly thrilling. Let me put some eyes at ease. No, I did not sit on the chocolate dildo. I knew that thing could snap right off of those chocolate balls, and then it's bye-bye, baby roof. <laughs> Serenity Suites <laughs> was more than a job. It was my clubhouse. Kathy encouraged me to hang out with friends after closing. As an avid rule follower and enthusiastic brown noser, I always treated the place with respect, cleaned up after myself, and only ever ate the appropriate amount of merchandise as per our agreement. It was an unspoken agreement, but one I definitely faithfully honored. Standing on the precipice of real teen shit, I felt remarkably well prepared. I had a steady source of income and a sweet hangout spot with no adult supervision and a never-ending supply of coffee, candy, and ice cream. Take that, beach pit! <laughs> Working at the cafe also further enmeshed me in the new social group. Kathy was having an affair with Jimmy Butcher, an aspiring burnout dragging his heels over the threshold of post-high school life. Jimmy's brother, Chuck, was in my grade. He had the comedic presence and drug habit of a young Chris Farley. The Butcher Boys were the town's lovable fuck-ups, and their bonfire parties became weekend staples. We would drink, smoke, eat too much pizza. Uh, Jimmy would wear nothing but a bass guitar. Chuck and his way-too-hot-for-him girlfriend would have screaming fights, terrible music played. 
There'd be unnecessarily complex Ocean's Eleven style high schemes to steal beer from the country convenience and drink it in the gazebo behind a VFW hall. It was my first taste of being bad. I was a devout weeb, an honor student, an Odyssey of the Mind state champion. <laughs> now, I was embroiled in extramarital affairs, drugs, chocolate dongs. Like, this was the Degrassi, this was not the Degrassi episode I thought that I'd be starring in. And yet, this is exactly where I belonged. It was a collection of manic, depressive dream girls, uh, recently emancipated minors and Renfair summertime employees, the butchers, the girl who gave everyone lice in the eighth grade, the clove-smoking dropout who worked the day shift at the cafe. These were my people. Together, uh, we replaced the crippling emptiness with crudely drawn cartoons on leaf pages passed between classes. We shoplifted from Claire's accessories <laughs> and a night scream scene with the windows down as cigarette embers whipped around us. Even when the darkness hitched a ride, we welcomed the chance to do the sort of caretaking we all otherwise lacked. We would meet at an abandoned baseball field dugout or the reservoir near school to hold each other through the breakups, the parental strife, and do our best to parent the advice from our universally terrible therapists. We were a suburban version of Peter Pan's Lost Boys, an island of misfit toys landlocked between Westchester and Rockland County. Among the constellations orbiting our extended social universe was a, was a cluster of girls with multicolored hair and lithium prescriptions. I asked one out once, only for her to reply, but you're gay. <laughs> Which of course I was, though I, I hadn't ever really thought anyone else noticed. Was it still awkward still seeing that girl at the high school radio station every day? No. It wasn't. I was a young homosexual, and she was a sad girl with a sense of humor. We're still friends to this day, come on. <laughs> it did, however, say the quiet part quite loud. When I hinted at queerness in the faintest of whispers among my absolute closest friends, it was always done under the auspices of this big, terrible secret, like I was cursed. I mean, after all, Matthew Shepard's murder was still very fresh in the collective consciousness. Being able to speak about it so matter-of-factly felt like a transgressive act. One weekend, uh, Chuck Butcher and his most recent beautiful but in a broken way girlfriend had gotten their hands on some ecstasy for the three of us. Not Molly. Not MDMA. No, this was the tail end of the 90s in the suburbs, honey. It was ecstasy. <laughs> in preparation, we, we picked a night my parents would be out of town. I couldn't just use a simple cover of, of an above-board slumber party because my parents were famously anti-sleepover. Allegedly, it was because, why would you want to sleep in someone else's house? But really, it was because they assumed that we would just do drugs and have sex. In this case, they happen to be right, sort of. Mm -hmm. This was not some sexy Samantha Jones experience. We took the ecstasy, we put on the Chemical Brothers. I'm pretty sure there was a feather at one. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, 
Chuck, his girlfriend, and I collapsed on a suspiciously crusty futon. We didn't come close to having sex, but I did touch Chuck's hard-on through the thick denim fly of his Genko jeans. Is this why they don't give ecstasy to 14-year-olds? The whole experience was exhilarating and nauseating all at once. A wave of emotions washed over me. Was this the E? Am I allergic to feathers? Wait, 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 wait. Why would I want to sleep here? I wanted to go home. Jimmy drove me back and dropped me off, just as my parents were unexpectedly returning home from what was supposed to be an overnight trip. Sure, I made it home to my own bed, but I also fully reeked of beer and cigarettes. I was grounded indefinitely. The punishment ultimately had the opposite effect of its intended effect. Instead of seeing this as an opportunity to reject the deviant path of punk rock, parliament cigarettes, and hot brownies. I desperately miss my friends. And not just for the parties. I mean, I wasn't just learning how to hit a gravity bomb with these people. We took care of each other. We normalized our teenage trauma. We gave each other love and affirmation. Eventually, I was unceremoniously fired from Serenity Suites. Turns out, a cafe slash chocolate shop slash ice cream parlor run entirely by ravenous children isn't a viable business model. <laughs> I stayed friends with the butchers and most of that crew, though I found a better balance between the honor roll nerd I was and the rock and roll trash bag I also sort of was. But I never would have felt empowered to redraw the boundaries of myself without them. We may not have had a cultural center or strong enough child labor laws or a fucking horse in that town, but we had each other, no matter how alone we felt. It turns out it's pretty liberating to get together with a bunch of people who also feel like no one wants them only to say, fuck you, we want us. Is that, why, is that what Kathy was looking for with Jimmy Butcher? Is that why she opened the cafe and courted the young clientele? Maybe she wanted that same permission, to be bad, to be messy, to try out different versions of herself. Somewhere, no one is a fuck up, because everyone is the weightlessness that only comes without expectation. A taste of serenity. Switching it up, tensions are high at the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. A clumsy daughter fights back tears and curiosity during worship, afraid to rouse her mother's wrath. A pinch and piercing stare are just the beginnings of a spiraling rage in this epic tale of expression, power, and ultimately, acceptance. Here is Meltdown, written by Desi Waters and performed for us by Bobby Hankinson. What is something you don't normally tell a room full of people that you are meeting for the first time? Oh. <laughs> and, and I always let them know too, like we're not trying to, this is a podcast, we're not trying to blackmail you, so you don't yeah. have to reveal like your deepest, darkest secret. Oh, you know what, I'll tell my half dark secret. Okay. 
I love a good Danielle Steele novel. Just a good, her bosom heaved. Yeah. She called him in Paris and took his money. <laughs> Danielle Steele all the way. Nice. Yeah. Well, a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> Switching it up, uh, Bobby will perform a meltdown written by Desi Waters. Meltdown. My mom is quick to anger, and I am quick to tears. Our silent battles always come to a head at the Jehovah's Witnesses' Kingdom Hall. It was torturous to sit still on a Sunday morning while they talk about sinning for three hours especially when you are 10 years old and you know your friends are waiting for you to go bike riding. We live in the projects in New York City, so bike riding is a big thing. My dad is addressing the entire congregation. I'm proud, but bored. Dad instructs the congregation. Let's turn to Nahum chapter one, verse two. Finally, I have something to do. I open my Bible and try to beat everyone to the page so I can prove that I have been paying attention in Bible study. I hold it up right in front of my face. Unfortunately, I am so clumsy, the book slides out of my hands and falls to the floor. My sisters laugh, and Mom gives us the stop playing around look. Dad continues, Jehovah takes vengeance against his foes, and he stores up wrath for his enemies. Jehovah is slow to anger and great in power. I know this passage. I close my eyes for a second. I wonder, who is more powerful, my mom or Jehovah? I can hear myself snoring in my own ears, but I can't wake myself up. Ouch! Mom pinches me. It did the trick. I stopped snoring. Now. I'm crying crocodile tears? I don't know what that means, but that is exactly what my mom writes on the piece of paper she passes me after the pinch. Stop crying those crocodile tears or I will give you something to cry about. I don't tell her that I already have something to cry about. She just pinched me. <laughs> People start applauding and mom pinches me again to make sure I'm clapping. Honestly, I'm clapping more for Brother Jackson who's about to say the closing prayer. It's 11.45 a.m. In 15 minutes, I can go home and put on my jeans. I'm snapped out of my daydreams of wearing jeans and riding my bike and freedom when I hear Brother Jackson say, as of today, we don't want our young brothers and sisters watching the Smurfs. We think Gargamel's magic sends an evil message, so please don't watch them anymore. I lean over to ask mom, like every other kid in attendance, what does that mean? She glares at me and I go back to paying attention. I watch other parents calmly explain what was said to their kids. It hurts. I don't know why I anger mom the way I do. And I don't get why her being angry makes me cry. With a look, mom can make me cry in an instant. She's got a powerful look. I have no clue how she does it. She doesn't need to be mean. I have so many questions. Whenever I try to ask her anything, she yells at me and says, you're about to get on my bad side. I try my best not to be on her bad side. 
I spend as much time as possible outside because when I'm inside, there is no doubt in my mind I will do something dumb and end up on her bad side. I can feel the tears burning behind my eyes, searching for an escape. So I keep my eyes open wide. I can't blink or the tears will fall out of my eyes. I don't want, to, I don't want her to see me crying again. I'm so mad. I can think of nothing else on the way home. I want to scream or hit something. I go to put on my jeans, and Mom says I can't go outside until I find my good shoes. Mom asks me if I like trouble since I was always in it. It's a rhetorical question, though I think maybe I do like being in trouble. I can't say what I want to her, so I scream into my pillow. I saw someone do that on an ABC after school special once. It didn't help me. I'm watching my friends out the window instead of looking for my stupid shoes because honestly the day is ruined anyway. I hear mom and dad behind their bedroom door speaking in loud whispers. I can't hear what they're saying. The loud whispering turns into yelling. I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what they're fighting about. Did my teacher call again? Did she hear me scream into my pillow? Is this all over my lost shoes? The yelling gets shriller. I hear mom crying, which makes me cry. Mom is so strong. She must really be hurting to be sobbing that way. Did they lose their jobs? Maybe we have to move. Mom wants to move to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. I do not want to move to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> they don't have Macy's fireworks. All the kids I met there dream of moving to New York City. Besides, no famous Broadway actresses live out in the country. I hope we aren't moving. Mom and Dad's door busts open, the wood hitting the wall. Mom is moving fast to the house, searching for something. Dad is silent and patient, following behind her. They are living examples of opposites attracting. Mom is harsh and quick. Dad, gentle and slow. Mom stops searching and turns to ask Dad, her voice shaking a little, Where's the meeting moving? So this is the answer I was searching for. The book study is being moved. Book study is a weekly discussion held by Jehovah's Witnesses in someone's home. We study the Bible Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. We knock on people's doors on Saturday to tell them about the Bible study. There, now you, now you have the schedule. <laughs> we have held the book study at our apartment for years. Honestly, I don't see what the big deal is. If they hold the study meeting somewhere else, I wouldn't have to clean the house for the meeting and we could rush home in time to watch Happy Days. Dad replies to mom tentatively. It, it doesn't matter, babe, what house they hold study in. The elders decided to move it. Now that's that. Mom growls to dad, don't give me that shit. Whoa. I have never heard mom curse before. I cursed last year. I asked what the heck is on TV. Dad made me read the Bible for an hour. I have not cursed in front of my parents since. I'm lingering in the hallway by my room eavesdropping. I can hear Dad stacking and folding the metal Kingdom Hall provided chairs. He speaks rationally as he works. You have got to calm down now. The meeting is moving to Sister Nelson's house. Ugh, the Nelsons. The Nelsons moved here a month ago. They are Brother Jackson's cousins. 
I don't like the Nelsons. Well, I don't like Stephanie. She's eight, and everyone talks about how cute she is. She has dimples. I am 10, and this is reason enough to dislike someone. And if Stephanie wouldn't get to watch Happy Days every Wednesday, well, that's just the price of having dimples. <laughs> Mom is oddly quiet, sniffling. She's going through all the closets and slamming the doors. I follow behind her. She runs into her room and starts throwing more stuff. Suddenly, she storms past me out of her room holding a bat. I'd never seen her move that quick. I never knew we owned a bat. I follow Mom to the living room. She is swinging at the bookshelves. Jehovah's Witnesses study hundreds of books a year. Every member of our family has their own collection of religious books, all seven of us. I am frozen as shelves come off the wall and books are falling, no raining, no pouring on my head. I can't see past the white fluttering of flying pages around me. Dad restrains her, holding her tight. Vivian, Vivian, stop this! I had seen Mom angry, but this was something different. It seems like she's coming apart at the seams, like something inside her has escaped and it's wreaking havoc on our living room. Rage. This is rage. This is her bad side. Dad yells at me, Desiree, go outside in the hallway and don't come back until I tell you. I stood with one foot half in the apartment and the other in the hallway, watching Dad wrestle the bat out of her hand. Mom crumples on the mountains of books, crying, screaming, no, pulling the rest of the books off the large bookcase. Dad helps her up, brings her to their bedroom. I hear him say, now, see what you've done? I slink back inside. Books and wood and shelf parts are all over the place. I look over the mess, shocked, as tears tickle my cheeks before settling on my upper lip. I hear their bedroom door close. Dad stands next to me. His shaky hand on my shoulder, he asks, you okay? I whisper back, taking in the destruction. Uh-huh. Dad and I stand silently, looking over the pile, listening to Mom's soft cries from her room, taking in the mess and the aftermath of her bad side. He gets his toolbox from under the sink and starts screwing shelves back into the wall and matching up pieces. I put like books with like books, and we work silently. An hour later, Mom emerges calm and collected. I didn't like the way those shelves looked anyway. Desiree, let me see those Bible. Mom smiles and jokes with us, and we take this as her apology. I laugh, but still fear she will remember her rage and start swinging. By the time my sisters come home, the house is back together. It looks like we spent the day cleaning, not exploding. Mom never mentions tearing the shelves from the wall. I wonder if my sisters ever knew. We went to Bible study at the Nelsons, but something had changed. We left the Jehovah's Witnesses soon after. I didn't miss it at all. I had my mother's wrath to deal with. I couldn't handle avengeful gods as well. With mom, all of my feelings came out as tears. I was not allowed to express anger to mom. But with everybody else, I developed my own bad side. My bad side would scream at people when it got angry. It would punch others when frustrated. 
It tore posters off my bedroom wall. My bad side was slow to appear, but when it was present, it wreaked havoc. Now, I have a three-year-old who is fiery and opinionated. She stamps her foot and says, no, thank you, mama, that's my toy. Or, I don't want to get dressed, I want to watch TV. With a toddler, there's only room for one person's feelings, the toddler's. I find myself teetering over the edge of shutting down her anger and exploding with mine, just like mom. God, I thought I had more time to figure it out. I do yell at her, and she cries, and I cry too. She's learning about my bad side. I don't want her to be afraid of me. I know what it's like to swallow your anger. I know what it's like to see rage explode. I know what it's like to be powerless. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.